Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Early in May, alumni of Dartmouth College, members of the Mohegan Nation, the Columbia Historical Society, and state and local officials gathered in the quiet corner town of Columbia to commemorate the 250th anniversary of the founding of Dartmouth. Why Columbia? That's where the Great Awakening Minister Eliezer Wheelock, inspired by the educational achievements of Mohegan student Samson Ockham, founded Moore's Indian Charity School, the training school for indigenous missionaries that led directly to Wheelock's founding of Dartmouth in 1769. In this episode, following Elder Beth Regan's Mohegan Language Conference Invocation, State Historian Walt Woodward describes Eliezer Wheelock's life as a local minister and Great Awakening evangelist, his relationship with Samson Ockham, and life at Moore's Indian Charity School. Eliezer Wheelock, The Great Awakening, Samson Ockham, and the Indian School, coming up on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Good morning. My name is Stephen Everett. I am first selectman for the town of Columbia, and it is my great honor and pleasure to welcome you all here today for uh, what I believe is going to be a very fun day, uh, informative day. I would like to welcome some special guests. First, First, Dartmouth alumni, thank you very much. Family, friends, organizers, and the Dartmouth College officials. Certainly, the day would not even be viable if it wasn't for our other guests, the elders and members of the Mohegan tribe. (laughs) And the state of Connecticut and uh, dignitaries who they may be stopping in and out during the day to say hello and maybe learn a few things about the history of Columbia and Dartmouth College and certainly the Mohegan's association with that. It's going to be a great day. They've put a lot of work into this to be able to share with you a little bit of history that you may not otherwise know and uh, that we're very proud of in the town of Columbia. So before we get started, officially, I would like to invite Mohegan Elder Beth Regan to give a blessing for today's event. I said, good morning and welcome to my family, all our relations. I'm called Morning Deer, the Mohegan tribe. And I'm honored to give our blessing today. So I will do this in both English and Mohegan. And um, I hope you forgive that I may have to read one of the lines because our language is in transition. So my last line, I want to make sure I get it right. So I would ask if you are able, if you would please stand. Ketantuit, creator. Ketapatamayamon, wuchi yokisk. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the gathering of our ancestors whose spirits guide us. Thank you for our Mother Earth. Thank you. For the many blessings you have given us, Creator. Wika patamon, kakwata yanama, kuki katon, 
May we bring honor today by our words and our actions. Thank you to my family. So now I'd like to introduce to you your organizers who first approached us about two years ago. Uh, so good morning, and my name is Sarah Burbine Potter, class of 91. This event is part of the year-long celebration of Dartmouth's 250th anniversary, and it's been in the works, as Steve said, for more than two years. The idea actually started at a gathering of regional club and affiliated uh, group re representatives in Hanover back in 2017. The Alumni Relations Office asked us to brainstorm on ideas for events to mark this year uh, for Dartmouth's 250th, 2019 seemed a long time ago, two years ago. So my interest in learning more about Eliezer Wheelock and what brought me to Columbia Knowing that Wheelock had deep New England roots before Dartmouth was ever even founded, I started looking at where Eliezer was prior to 1769, the founding of Dartmouth. So I was surprised to learn, I've been living in Connecticut now for 18 years, but I was surprised to learn that Eliezer was here for 35 years in one place, right here where we're standing today, what is now Columbia, Connecticut, what used to be called Lebanon Crank, Connecticut. So I started doing some research. I found a few websites focusing on Wheelock's connection to Columbia and lots of pictures of the buildings and monuments here in Columbia that we're going to see today. So I reached out to the people at the Columbia Historical Society and I proposed a day-long event and the group was incredibly enthusiastic. In fact, they told me that back in 1969, 50 years ago, they had a huge celebration here for Dartmouth's 200th anniversary. So I just really want to put out a huge thanks to all the officers and the board members um, from the Historical Society for all of your time, help, and enthusiasm over these last two plus years. And specifically, I want to thank Ingrid Wood and Judy Ortiz and Judy Jean Neufer uh, for all of your help. Uh, very pleased to have Beth Regan of the Mohegan Tr Council of Elders here speaking this afternoon about Samson Occam and his importance for the Mohegan tribe as we mark Dartmouth's Sester Centennial. I think this may be a word the alumni have been hearing quite a bit so far this year uh, for the 250th. So I guess we'll get started now. So next on the agenda is Walt Woodward. And importantly for this audience, Professor Woodward is a direct descendant of Eliezer Wheelock, and he's currently working on a book about Wheelock and his time in Connecticut. Good morning. This is the way students were called to the morning prayer session at Moore's Indian Charity School. They began every day at 6 a.m. in summer, uh, with the blowing of the conch shell. So, if you will. That's awesome. That is just what I want to hear at 6 a.m. in the morning. Good morning and welcome to Columbia, the nursery of the great institution we celebrate today. Columbia, as I hope you'll have a chance to see while you're here, is a place with lovely homes, warm people, a crystal lake, and deep, deep roots in the American past. It's a small town, but to paraphrase Daniel Webster on Dartmouth, there are those of us who love it. Much of what you hear and do today will focus on two men, 
Eliezer Wheelock, the congregational minister credited with founding Dartmouth 250 years ago, and Samson Ockham, the Mohegan convert to Christianity, who as a Christian Mohegan minister actually did much of the heavy lifting that made the college possible. Both these men's lives were, for better and worse, inextricably connected. Each became who he was because of the other. Each achieved remarkable things which he could not have done without the other's influence. Sadly, each ultimately felt deep disappointment in, if not bitterness about, the other's behavior. And both men spent the last chapters of their lives trying to implement their own particular interpretation of a dream the two had once shared. My talk today will focus primarily on Eliezer Wheelock, who spent most of his life not as the founder of Dartmouth, but as the minister of Lebanon Crank, Columbia's name when it was founded in 1716 as the second parish of the town of Lebanon. I'm going to focus on Wheelock's life as a minister, <clears throat> his founding of Moore's Indian Charity School, and how both his ministry and the school affected and were received here in the town he served. What I hope to do is set the table for the rest of your day here, to provide a context that will help you better think about the places you'll see and the talks you'll hear, and provide a little insight into why Wheelock stayed in this town so long and why he finally moved away. There's a portrait of Wheelock that I think you all know. It's the only portrait painted of him uh, in his lifetime. It was painted by Joseph Stewart, uh, who was at Dartmouth when Wheelock died there in 1779 at the age of 69. It is the only likeness of him by a contemporary. And glad as we are that it exists, I think it limits our view of Wheelock too, as much as it provides one. To see the Eliezer Wheelock I want to talk about, you have to begin by stripping away many years, quite a few pounds, and some signs of illness to uncover the 24-year-old minister who came to this town in 1735 and oversaw its congregation for the next 35 years. That 24-year-old Wheelock, who accepted an invitation to preach on probation in the winter of 1735, knew he was coming to a troubled church. Twice before, the small Puritan congregation in this startup village had gone to the considerable effort and great expense of finding and hiring a minister, and both times things had gone terribly wrong. The first minister, Samuel Smith, relinquished his office due to mental health issues and died, probably by suicide, on the same day his successor, William Gager, was ordained. Gager's ministry was also troubled. He had served nine years, but was forced to resign after several scandalous reports of public drunkenness. Two flawed and failed ministers in succession did not reflect well on Lebanon Crank's church-founding efforts, and the young congregation was under considerable pressure to make its third choice a good one. In a larger sense, though, the failed ministries were emblematic of a more general trend. In the 1730s, Puritan New England was in deep spiritual and moral decline. 
Historians cite many causes for this. Economic ambition and greater access to consumer goods, land shortages and high mobility, changing modes of child rearing, and a rising sense of personal independence, especially among the young. Whatever the underlying causes, the fire of religious zeal that energized New England's founding generations had, by the 1730s, been replaced by spiritual apathy among most people and a religion of forms and rituals among the godly. On the surface, perhaps, New England Puritanism appeared as strong as ever. Government was still run as a godly commonwealth. Everyone was still taxed to support their town's church and minister, and the church was still seen as the religious and moral arm of the state. Everyone still was legally required to go to church twice on Sunday, and people still drank deeply at the well of Calvinist guilt they'd absorbed through childhood catechisms, family prayers, and weekly sermons. By today's standards, I suspect they would look and even seem very religious. But the excruciating psychological and spiritual tension once generated by the Calvinist belief that only a small and select group of people were chosen by God to be saved and that the vast majority of people were utterly and inescapably damned to eternity in hell had waned. For New England's Puritan founders, life was a constant soul-searching battle between hope and fear, seeking that inner spark of religious fervor that indicated God might have chosen you as one of his saints, while simultaneously fighting the overwhelming fear that you were probably damned to hell. Over time, the fire had gone out of Puritanism, and in its place was something much more formal and far less powerful. By the 1730s, Puritanism was a religion of forms and rituals in which believers' faith was measured by whether they lived Christian lives and acted with scrupulous piety. Ministers called this godly walking, and godly walking became the accepted standard for admission as a full communion-taking member of a Puritan congregation. Only a few people in any community fit that description. The rest came to church out of habit or only when they had to, not feeling bound by the imperatives of godly walking as much as the pursuit of more worldly goals. If they feared the damnation that might come to them as a result of their spiritual apathy, it wasn't enough to make them alter the way they lived. The Connecticut Assembly had tried to check the colony's spiritual and moral decline by insisting that church attendance be officially monitored and that laws against lying, swearing, drunkenness, and unseasonable meetings of young people were strictly enforced but this did not reverse the spiritual trend. Just as Wheelock was beginning his ministry, the Lebanon church from which his new congregation had been hived off called a special meeting to determine what to do about the purity of their church, which they said seems daily to be declining. Reversing this spiritual decline would present a challenge for any minister, but it was one 24-year-old Wheelock readily embraced. The son of a prosperous church deacon from nearby Wyndham and a recent prize-winning Yale graduate, 
Wheelock had already turned down a ministerial offer on Long Island and arrived in Columbia confident in himself and his abilities, ambitious to make his mark on the world and filled with a sense of mission. He set out to wake the slumbering religious zeal of his twice-burned congregation, and he met with an almost astonishing degree of success. Wheelock was one of two ministers whose 1735 preaching efforts helped launch the revival of religion in New England. Scholars cite Northampton minister Jonathan Edwards' success in instilling religious zeal among his town's young people that year as the first stirrings of the phenomenon known as the Great Awakening. Edwards reported of his congregation that summer that all seemed to be seized with a deep concern about their eternal salvation. But Edwards also noted that he wasn't alone. A similar deep concern had come to Connecticut, in a part of Lebanon called the Crank, where the Reverend Mr. Wheelock, a young gentleman, is lately settled. Although Wheelock had not been ordained until early June, by year's end he had brought over a hundred new members into his church. What made it possible for Wheelock to succeed in converting spiritual apathy into religious zeal? Well, to begin with, he was blessed with some extraordinary abilities. Benjamin Trumbull, a contemporary who saw him preach, described him as a gentleman of a comely figure, of a mild and winning aspect. In other words, he was good-looking and good-natured, too. But that was just the beginning. His voice, Trumbull said, was smooth and harmonious, the best that ever I heard, and he had the entire command of it. In other words, Wheelock was an extraordinary orator with a beautiful speaking voice. Yet it was how he used that voice that made him so effective. Wheelock, like Jonathan Edwards, deployed his oratorical power not to reinforce the formal pieties of the godly walkers, but to instill deep, soul-wrenching fear, to bring to life with terrifying effectiveness the torments and never-ending agonies that accompanied damnation. His preaching and addresses were close and pungent, Trumbull wrote, meaning that they were short, strict, piercing, and persuasive, and yet winning beyond almost all comparison, so that his audience would be melted even into tears before they were aware of it. Wheelock was relentless in his assault on spiritual apathy and on all whose hearts were hardened to their own sin. The audience, Trumbull said, were pressed by all means to be Christians indeed, and not to deceive themselves. He insisted that all, without exception, who would not believe would most certainly be damned. Wheelock brought to the pulpit a fervent, evangelical, emotional style that was the antithesis of the logical, formulaic sermons of the godly walkers. And to augment his sermons, he changed the music sung in church from the old monotonous psalms of the Bay Psalmbook to the new harmonious hymns of Isaac Watts. Wheelock won many new followers, both from those who had been spiritually apathetic and the piously observing but spiritually dead godly walkers. To protect his congregation's newfound zeal for Christian virtue, 
Wheelock set up church tribunals with himself at the head to examine, try, and judge violations of spiritual and moral authority. With the zealotry of the true believer, Wheelock called inhabitants of Lebanon crank high and low to account for fighting, fornication, drinking, lying, stealing, beating slaves, and not coming to services. Even as he built a large following, there were those in Lebanon, Crank, and elsewhere who saw his judgmental, evangelical, and emotional preaching style as an unwelcome departure from the more staid school of godly piety. But their opposition was, in the early days, relatively ineffective. Wheelock's star was fast rising, and with the appearance of an English itinerant Anglican evangelist named George Whitfield, it would soon blaze a trail all across New England. With Whitfield, the spiritual awakening Edwards and Wheelock had launched locally five years earlier became a trans-New England phenomenon. Whitfield toured Connecticut and Massachusetts in the summer of 1740, delivering over 100 sermons in 41 towns in 46 days, many in open fields to enraptured audiences numbering in the thousands. Like Edwards and Wheelock, Whitfield deployed conscience-pricking emotional preaching to awaken his hearers to the peril of their unsaved conditions. But he preached in a flamboyant, charismatic style with extravagant bodily gestures and tearful outbursts that took such sermonizing to new dramatic heights, emphasizing with vivid imagery the desperately real danger of hell those before him faced, Whitfield insisted that to be saved, Christians had to experience an inner spiritual conversion, be born again in a way that was immediate and overpowering and spiritually transcendent. Whitfield completely rejected the idea that piety, church attendance, family prayer, or moral living the foundation of the godly walker's assurance were signs of salvation. Piety counted for nothing, he insisted, unless one had actually experienced a spiritually transcendent rebirth. Whitfield's effect on audiences was purely astonishing. People shrieked in fear, cried in agony, fell senseless to the ground in spiritual trances, some wept for joy as they felt the spirit within them. Others praised God and sang hymns of praise. Whitfield electrified all New England, and he drew to his side men like Wheelock and Wheelock's brothers-in-law, the Reverend Benjamin Pomeroy of Hebron, just down the road here, and James Davenport, who thought Whitfield's presence heralded a moment of great Christian transformation. They emulated Whitfield's style of preaching, and they became itinerant sons of thunder themselves, traveling emissaries of God who precipitated the Great Awakening, a movement that would both renew and divide the old Puritan church. Eliezer Wheelock became one of the most important ministerial voices of the new movement. In 1741, while maintaining his duties in Lebanon Crank, he also took his ministry on the road, preaching soul-wrenching, fear-inducing sermons across the land. Invitations poured in as Wheelock became a revival rock star. 
Between the summer of 1741 and the fall of the next year, Wheelock preached in at least 20 towns other than his home parish, and he received invitations from at least a dozen more. His power to awaken people to their spiritual deficiencies, to wound them or put them under concern, as the saying went, was extraordinary, a tremendous asset to congregations on the verge of renewal. I can't be denied of you, wrote a minister from Marlborough, Massachusetts, urging him to come and preach. A Boston congregation playfully threatened to hold him captive unless he agreed to stay and preach there one more day. Wheelock was with Jonathan Edwards in Enfield in July 1741, when Edwards preached the sermon reminding the godly walkers before him that they were just sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he canceled his trip home after that sermon to help manage the wave of spiritual fear and anxiety Edwards' sermon had produced. New England that year was on spiritual fire, and Wheelock was one of the matches. In congregations characterized for years by a staid and placid formalism, people sighed, groaned, cried out, writhed in contortions, and trembled in arm-waving, breast-beating panic as the visiting preacher Wheelock scourged them with images of God's impending wrath and the need to be born again. Despite an exhausting travel schedule, Wheelock inspired a second awakening within his own church. A visitor from Windsor wrote of the glorious workings of the Spirit in Lebanon Crank, which Wheelock later wrote had brought in more than 300 converts. By late 1741, an exhausted but spiritually vibrant Wheelock was convinced what was happening was not just a great awakening, but a sign that the millennium, the long-awaited return of Christ to rule on earth for a thousand years, was underway. The work of God spreads gloriously in the land, he wrote Edwards, and I do verily believe these are the beginning of the glorious things that are spoken of concerning the city of God in the latter day. One of the surest signs that the awakening had millennial significance was the fact that Native Americans, who for generations had actively resisted English missionaries, were suddenly taking real interest in Christianity. Puritans believed that before Christ would return, all people, including New England's original inhabitants, had to become Christians. To Wheelock, these Indian conversions were profoundly important. He once wrote a group of Iroquois sachems, I have had you upon my heart ever since I was a boy. I have prayed for you daily for more than 30 years that a way might be opened to send the gospel among you and you be made willing to receive it. After more than a century of false starts, it seemed in 1741 that that time was at hand. Moved by awakening preachers such as Wheelock, and especially his brother-in-law, James Davenport, more than 50 Native people were attending services at Groton, 13 Nyanics at East Lyme, 100 Narragansetts at Westerly, Rhode Island, and 20 Mohegans, including Samson Occam's mother and aunt, the church at what is now Uncasville. Wheelock wrote expectantly to his fellow ministers about the great work underway among tribes, with many converted and the rest under concern. 
What a heady thing it must have been to be Eliezer Wheelock at that moment. Though just in his 30s, he was at the end of 1741, one of the best known and most sought after preachers of the Great Awakening, a leading figure in a spiritual movement movement that seemed about to bring the Christian fulfillment of days. His words could shake people to the core of their being, had brought hundreds upon hundreds into Christ's fold already, and word wounded thousands more. Who would have thought that the confident young man who'd arrived in a small out-of-the-way parish just six years before could rise to such heights so fast? Surely this was God's work, and Wheelock was his messenger. But even at this moment of spiritual triumph, Events were unfolding that would challenge the legitimacy of the Great Awakening, the spiritual fervor of its evangelists, and make Wheelock and his clerical relatives a focus of crucial critical scrutiny. In part, they brought it on themselves. From the Awakening's earliest days, the evangelists held up their soul-wrenching sermons as the antithesis of and antidote to the spiritless preaching of the non-revivalist ministers who held most of New England's pulpits. Calling themselves the New Lights, a phrase Wheelock helped coin, and the traditional Puritan establishment, the Old Lights, the evangelists made the awakening an almost constant attack on the very ministers whose pulpits they often preached from. At first, perhaps in surprise or forbearance or uncertainty as to how to react, the Old Light ministers had remained silent. But by the end of 1741, they and the godly walkers in their congregations who'd been horrified at the wild spiritual theatrics that had invaded their sanctuaries had had enough. Led by Boston minister Charles Chauncey, the old lights, clergy and laity together, launched a counterattack in which Wheelock and his ministerial relatives became prime targets. They stopped opening their pulpits to the traveling ministers, and they became openly critical of the New Light's evangelical fervor. Early in 1742, after a member of a congregation Wheelock had visited attacked him in writing for his violent rhetoric, extreme gestures, fist-pounding outbursts, and judging the state of others' souls, the Wyndham Association of Ministers citing the disorder and confusion that the itinerants had brought to formerly peaceful congregations, cautioned both Wheelock and his brother-in-law, Benjamin Pomeroy, to rein in their opinions. Then in May, the Connecticut General Assembly passed formal anti-itinerancy laws, making it illegal for any minister to preach in a church that was not his own without a formal invitation from the church's minister. They also ordered Wheelock's brothers-in-law, Pomeroy and Davenport, arrested and brought to Hartford to answer for causing great disorder at public assemblies in Stamford. Pomeroy was released with a warning. Davenport, a Long Island resident, was found mentally unbalanced and ordered deported. The anti-itinerancy laws triggered nearly a year and a half of theological civil war in Connecticut and they reverberated throughout New England. Congregations divided. Some of the New Light preachers and their followers, notably among them Pomeroy and Davenport, 
were energized by the establishment's opposition, and they went to ever further extremes. These would ultimately lead to Pomeroy's being deprived of his income and Davenport's public disgrace. For Wheelock, though, the establishment pushback forced him to reassess not the importance of the awakening, but its unintended consequences. He began to question the extremes with which some expressed their evangelical fervor, and he noticed with alarm the way ordinary parishioners, convinced they now had direct contact with the Holy Spirit, began to see themselves as authorities in spiritual matters, even to the point of challenging Wheelock on the purity of his own faith. Wheelock came to realize that without curves on spiritual enthusiasm, the awakening could lead to spiritual anarchy. The idea of a church where every person was their own religious authority was simply anathema to him. So he gradually pulled back from the forefront of the New Light movement. He curtailed his itinerant preaching, adopted more cautious interpretations of the visions his awakened converts experienced. And when his kinsman James Davenport set up an unlicensed evangelical academy called the Shepherd's Tent in New London, and in a fit of evangelical fervor, stripped off his pants in public and threw them into a bonfire. (laughs) Wish I was there. Wheelock printed a public letter criticizing the fiery, harsh, censorious, driving zeal of Davenport and his followers. Wheelock's changing attitudes to the awakening's energetic spiritualism didn't go unnoticed. I must say, you're strangely fallen from what you seemed two or three years ago, wrote a New Light convert in November 1744. Take heed, you have not the blood of souls on your door. As Wheelock stepped back from the itinerant movement, he put renewed emphasis on his work in Lebanon Crank. It was a good time to do so, for in his extended absences, there'd been some significant backsliding. In May 1743, he wrote a fellow minister, I continue among my dear flock, though the love of many seems to be waxing cold. We don't know whether Wheelock's congregation's chill came from backsliding evangelical converts or formerly quiet godly walkers empowered by recent events, but Wheelock's response was to forcefully assert both ministerial presence and his authority. This included a new round of church tribunals aimed at regulating moral behavior, enforcing the biblical Ten Commandments, and thwarting public expressions about his ministry. Among other cases, Wheelock's court tried his predecessor, William Gager, now a local school teacher, for public drunkenness, and it brought charges against two churchgoers for laughing and scoffing during a Wheelock sermon. Though it's clear that Wheelock had a large and a loyal base of support, there are also those among the congregation less enthusiastic about his ministry, and they would pose an ongoing challenge. One of the wedges between Wheelock and his parishioners that remained a constant throughout his 35-year tenure was sharp disagreement over his compensation. To attract Wheelock to settle among them, the town, reeling from its first failed and second ministers, offered him a substantial piece of land and gave him a large house as a settlement, a kind of signing bonus. 
but they wrote an annual salary agreement whose provisions could be interpreted ambiguously. At the end of Wheelock's extraordinarily successful first year, the church elected to interpret the contract in the way most favorable not to Wheelock, but to the town's ratepayers. This surprised and disappointed Wheelock, who had a very well-established sense of his own value, and he argued for more, but to no avail. In the years following, even as he grew the church, developed a large following, and became a ministerial celebrity, the congregation held its penurious line on his salary. This left Wheelock chronically lamenting the financial burden he suffered under, even as he, over time, built up substantial holdings in land and goods. The son of a wealthy Wyndham merchant, Wheelock had married Sarah Davenport Maltby, widow of a wealthy New Haven merchant and daughter of a leading Connecticut minister, just after accepting his ministerial post. He'd arrived in town at 24 years old, accompanied by two slaves, a sure sign to the town's relatively poor farmers that he wasn't a young man in need. Given his hard line on local morality, the church trials had undoubtedly won him as many enemies as friends, and his later itinerancy, which kept him away from the parish for long periods, one can readily see why the congregation may have felt justified in taking such a hard line on money matters. Yale President Ezra Stiles described Wheelock, along with some very complimentary terms, as ambitious and haughty, with much of the religious politician in his make. Nowhere was Wheelock's ambition more transparent than in his financial dealings with his parish. To supplement a salary he felt was not equal to his efforts, Wheelock put renewed effort into the Latin school for Latin scholars he, in a practice not uncommon among ministers, had conducted within his home since shortly after his arrival in Lebanon Crank. This was a school for students already proficient in reading and writing, and of the 66 boys known to have attended it, almost all were between the ages of 12 and 18 and sons of prospering area farmers. The course of instruction, which included the Latin required for college entrance, lasted 45 to 48 weeks. The students lived in the Wheelock household, and their fathers paid for tuition, use of the schoolroom, firewood, and the cost of books. Ironically, it was this Latin school, rather than the ministry, that would sustain Wheelock's sense that he was an important agent helping fulfill God's unfolding plan for humankind. Because even as the Great Awakening devolved into theological feuds and congregational fractures, and Wheelock found himself increasingly on the spiritual defensive, his path forward appeared in the form of a Mohegan mother named Sarah Ockham. Ockham came to talk to Reverend Wheelock about her son, Samson. Sarah had been among the first Mohegans converted by the New Light preachers, and her 17-year-old son, Samson, fell under concern and then found a hope shortly thereafter. Ockham wanted to read and understand the Bible, so he got an English primer and, with the help of nearby Anglo neighbors, taught himself to read. His motivation, he later wrote, was to teach Mohegan children to read and to instruct them in Christianity. But Ockham had also recently been named to the Mohegan Council, 
which had for many years been in a major land dispute with Connecticut, having a tribal council member proficient in written English would have been invaluable, so that may also have been a factor in Occam's desire for English mastery. By the time he was 19, Occam could read some of the New Testament, but he wanted to read more. So having heard about Wheelock's school, Occam asked his mother, who knew Wheelock, to see if he might agree, as Occam's English neighbors had done, to instruct him in reading. Occam envisioned spending two or three weeks with Wheelock and then returning home to continue his self-edification. Wheelock immediately realized the potential importance of helping foster the formal education of an indigenous Christian missionary, and he told Sarah Ockham he wanted to see her son as soon as possible. Sampson came to Lebanon Crank, expecting to stay with Wheelock a few days. Instead, he was here for the next four years. Wheelock took Ockham into his school and his home as a charity student, meaning he paid no tuition, and began teaching him English, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, while simultaneously initiating the undoubtedly more wrenching process for Ockham of forced assimilation into Anglo-English cultural ways and lifestyles. From the beginnings of colonization, the English had believed that civilization, and by that they meant adoption of English cultural norms, was a prerequisite to conversion. One could not live as a true Christian without adopting the disciplined English customs they believed made Christian behavior possible in conversation, personal relations, dress, foodways, work, and religion. For Occam and all the indigenous people who would come after him, learning English with Wheelock included learning to be English at the same time. No mean feat. In the account books recording expenditures laid out for Occam while he attended the school, the most money was spent on English clothing. Multiple pairs of shoes, coats, pants, stockings, shirts, all expensive because all fabric was hand-loomed and all clothing tailored. The second most common expense was for medical care. Occam was different from the other students in Wheelock School in more ways than just being a Mohegan. He was older, 20 when he arrived in December of 1743, and he suffered a serious eye condition that limited his reading and other activities. During the four years he was under Wheelock's charge, one year of which, while Wheelock's wife Sarah was dying, he spent under the instruction of Benjamin Pomeroy, Occam was frequently ill, requiring both a physician and nursing care. But he was also an extraordinarily capable student, and Wheelock lost little time in showing off his new Mohegan protege. During his first year, Wheelock took Occam to commencement ceremonies at Yale. This was no doubt to introduce Occam to what would be the next stage of his education as a minister. It also served in dramatic fashion to announce that Wheelock was engaged in the noble work, from the Anglo perspective, of helping fulfill God's great design of bringing the indigenous people to Christ. Still a third reason for introducing Occam to Wheelock's Yale acquaintances had to do with money. Wheelock would look to them to help finance Occam's education. Wheelock sensed and soon saw that through teaching an indigenous student, 
new sources of funding opened up that could support both Occam and indirectly the man whose school Occam attended. I don't mean to suggest, nor do I believe, that Wheelock's motive for teaching Occam was primarily pecuniary. But I do believe that Wheelock was like the Pilgrim Father Edward Winslow, who exuberantly claimed that in New England, religion and profit jump together. Wheelock was committed to Occam's education, with or without outside support. But realizing other people might want to aid that goal, he sought to fully exploit the potential. Occam wrote that Wheelock began to acquaint his friends of my being with him and of his intentions in educating me, and the good people began to give some assistance. Overall, between 1746 and 1748, Wheelock received over 350 pounds in support for Occam, a figure significantly higher than an English student's tuition and boarding cost, though so was the real cost of supporting Occam. Whether or not the donations to Occam met or exceeded his expenses, the real importance of them is that they showed Wheelock that there was widespread potential funding for an indigenous education program. Occam, who lost nearly a year to sickness during his matriculation, left Wheelock's Latin school after four years. Having overstrained his eyes to such a degree, he could no longer pursue his studies. But even though he departed Lebanon Crank in November of 1747, Occam's and Wheelock's lives would remain deeply enmeshed for the next two decades. Wheelock served as Occam's English advocate, counselor, champion, and also exploiter, as Occam became first a teacher among the Montauks, a missionary to the Delaware and Iroquois, an ordained minister on Long Island, a missionary to the Oneida, and an overseas fundraiser for the Indian school Wheelock said he thought he wanted to create on the American frontier. Occam became the inspiration, proof of concept, living brand, and most successful development officer for the grand design Wheelock launched here in Columbia and which led to the founding of Dartmouth. Without Eliezer Wheelock, it's unlikely Occam would have become a Christian minister, the author of the first best-selling publication by an American Indian or a hymnist whose compositions are still sung today. Without Occam, there would not have been a Moore's Indian school in this town or a Dartmouth College in Hanover. And Eliezer Wheelock would have been a footnote in the Great Awakening. Later today, Council Member Beth Regan will tell us more about Occam's remarkable life. I want to stay with Eliezer Wheelock and discuss the next chapter of his life in this town. From Wheelock's standpoint, educating Occam had been an unqualified success. Occam, Wheelock reported, has been useful beyond what could have been expected of an Englishman and less than half of the expense. And as he worked to help Occam secure a position as a minister to an Indian community, Wheelock began to think of scaling up the educational approach he used with Occam in an unprecedented way to create an Indian school to educate Indians from many tribes in English ways and Christian knowledge to prepare them to become missionaries to their own people. Such an approach he would have, he reasoned, many advantages. An Indian who naturally understood the language of the people he served 
would be four times as effective as an English missionary, and he could be maintained at half the price. They would automatically understand the customs of their tribe, something English missionaries often found difficult. They would also have more influence than an Englishman because Indians mistrusted the English, thinking they would steal their land. wonder why they did that. <laughs> Furthermore, in a school with Indians from many tribes, the students could more easily learn each other's languages and form networks of mutual assistance. Even as the millennial promise of the Great Awakening revival faded before him, Wheelock's concept for an Indian school became a new millennial vision, the grand design that would shape the remainder of his life. In 1754, Wheelock wrote John Brainerd, an English missionary in New Jersey, telling him of his plan and asking Brainerd to send two likely young Delaware boys to his new school. 14-year-old John Pumpture and 11-year-old Jacob Woolley arrived at Lebanon Crank after a 200-mile journey on foot on December 18, 1754, the first Indian school students. The reception of the two boys by the community was positive. A number of people donated clothes, fabric, shoes, food, and cash to support the boys' education. As the boys passed through the difficult transition into learning English lifeways, John Pumpture became so ill he returned home, only to die shortly after he got there. Wheelock used their presence to promote an expanded Indian school to potential backers. Joshua Moore, a prosperous farmer from nearby Mansfield, donated the school two acres of pastureland near the Lebanon Crank Green with a small house and shop with the promise of greater gifts ahead. In expectation of those greater gifts, Wheelock named the school Moore's Charity School after Moore. Additional Indian students arrived slowly at first, but in ever-increasing numbers. There were four students enrolled in 1757, five in 1759, seven in 1760, and 11 in 1761. In 1760, Willock expanded enrollment to include English boys who felt called to become Indian missionaries. The next year, he began admitting indigenous girls who came to learn the English housewifery skills needed to support mission activities. By 1765, the school enrollment had reached as high as 40. Over its years in Lebanon Crank, as many as 100 Mohegan, Pequot, Narragansett, Niantic, Montauk, Delaware, Mohawk, and Oneida, and several other tribe students attended the school. It was an impressive assemblage, and Wheelock saw it in millennial terms. He told George Whitfield in 1759, God had opened such a door for the grand design that he was almost persuaded the time for calling in the poor creatures into his trinity and kingdom is just at hand. What was the experience of being educated at the school like for the indigenous boys and girls who attended it? How did the community react to them and their school's growing presence here? And then how did it affect the town's relations with its minister? Since many of you will be going on a walking tour shortly after this, I want to spend the rest of my time focusing on these three questions. My hope is that as you walk in the footsteps of Wheelock and Occam, you'll be able to imaginatively peel back time 
and re-envision some of what I'm about to describe. As far as a student's education goes, there's a lot we don't know. But there's a lot we do. We know, for example, that Wheelock's Latin School and Moore's Indian Charity School both existed at the same time. But we have no idea whether, for practical purposes, they were melded into one school or operated independently. We know the Latin scholars lived in Wheelock's house, and the charity school students lived in another house across the street. But we also know Wheelock housed the Indian students in his own home when they were ill, <clears throat> so in some situations, at least, housing overlapped. We know, too, that most of the Latin scholars were paying students, and all of the Indian scholars were not. But whether that created social or class distinctions between the two groups in action isn't clear. All in all, we have more questions about the two schools' coexistence than answers, but it's helpful to remember that they were there. Who taught the students? Wheelock hired religious, faithful, and learned schoolmasters, usually recent college graduates, to teach the students while he served as headmaster, overseer of the school, and it often seems perpetual fundraiser. Masters usually served a couple of years before moving on, though Beasleyle Woodward, who started as a schoolmaster here, remained here with the school for many years and then taught many years after that at Dartmouth. The boys received formal instruction in reading, writing, liberal arts and sciences, and particularly religion, which included instruction in music and singing hymns. Girls, whose admission was predicated on their acquiring English housewifery and clothes-making skills they would subsequently use as missionary wives, received classroom instruction in reading and writing in Wheelock's home, but only one day a week. The rest of the time, they lived in households of local women hired to teach them the basic arts of English homemaking. For practical purposes, this meant they became unpaid indentured servants in an English household. And because they were indigenous, it's not unlikely they were saddled with the worst of the daily chores. For the boys, the school day began early and continued into evenings. Indian scholars were to be clean, dressed, and ready to be summoned by the blowing of a conch, that heavenly sound, for morning prayers before sunrise in fall and winter and at 6 a.m. in the summer. Morning devotions were followed by a short break. Then another prayer preceded morning classes, which lasted from 9 to 12. After a two-hour break, more classes until 5. The boys gathered for evening prayer at sunset and then did homework. On Sundays, they attended Wheelock's morning and afternoon church services. Between services, the master evaluated their behavior, instructed them in the Westminster Catechism, or led reading exercises. At the beginning of their education, students were taught English, reading, writing, and speech. Later, Latin and Greek was introduced. The primary teaching method employed was memorization and recitation. Importance was also placed on good penmanship, learned by copying Latin phrase books, in part because samples of the boys' Latin handwriting were sometimes sent to donors both to express appreciation for support and to demonstrate the success of the school's educational efforts. To supplement their academic training, boys learned English husbandry skills working on Wheelock's farm. 
This unpaid service was to help fund their upkeep. Many boys complained about being overworked as farmhands, and Wheelock found he had to defend himself against the charge he was exploiting them. The father of the Narragansett, Charles Daniel, withdrew his son from the school because of what he saw as the imbalance between Christian education and agricultural training. To work two years to learn to farm, he wrote Wheelock, is what I don't consent to when I can as well learn him that myself and have the profits of his labor. Some of the students also became apprentices to local tradesmen to acquire useful skills such as carpentry, joinery, or blacksmithing. To outside visitors among the English, the school was impressive. John Smith of Boston, who visited Lebanon Crank in May of 1764 to see for himself what others had reported, sent friends a glowing report. He arrived as the evening prayer service was beginning, and he was movingly touched to hear an Indian youth set the time and the others following him and singing the tenor in bass with remarkable gravity and seriousness. At 5 a.m. the next morning, he was even more impressed at the student's performance during devotions and the follow-on lessons. It's really charming, he said, to see Indian use of different tribes and languages in pure English, reading the word of God and speaking with exactness and accuracy on points either chosen by themselves or given out to them in the several arts and sciences. Wheelock rode out with his visitor as he was leaving town, and he stopped at a farmhouse where one of the girl's students was living. Wheelock called to the farmer, who then called the girl outside. Smith wrote that it was exquisite to see the savageness of an Indian molded into the sweetness of a follower of the lamb. Molded seems a fairly accurate way of describing what happened to the students at Wheelock School. But how exactly did that molding process work, and how did the students in the mold feel about it? Here the record tells a different and not nearly as positive a story. The transition from living in a Native American community to being educated under English government must have been painful, if not traumatic, for every child who went through it. Coming from the far less hierarchical and more permissive environments of indigenous cultures, to the rigidly hierarchical and structured world of an 18th century English colonial town would certainly have been wrenching, even to those with prior contact with English society. Wheelock's Anglo-centric sense of cultural superiority blinded him to the deeply embedded racism of his attitudes and values. This made it impossible for him to see the difficulties incoming students faced during the transition as anything other than deficiencies to be eradicated. None know nor well conceive, nor, none know nor well conceive of the difficulty of educating an Indian, he wrote Whitfield. They are used to sit upon the ground, and it's as natural for them as a seat to our children. They're wont to not have any clothes but what they wear. They're not used to any regular government, the sad consequences of which you may a little guess at. They've never been used to the furniture of an English house, and they don't know but that a wine glass is as strong as a hand iron. They are as unpolished and uncultivated within as without. 
Wheelock insisted that students be completely separated from their home communities and families if he could manage it throughout their education. Isolated from their previous state of nature, he could, as he admitted, impose strict government and discipline, as severe as shall be necessary without opposition from or offense taken by any. And who does not know the evils as obstinate as those we may reasonably expect to find common in children of savages will require that which is severe. To be sure, the English boys in the Latin school also faced strict discipline and corporal punishment. The proverb, spare the rod and spoil the child, was taken quite literally in the 18th century. But Wheelock suggests that a much harsher standard of discipline was applied to the Indian school children. How did the students react to this forced immersion into English culture? Many found it a wrenching, even an impossible experience. Of the 59 native students for whom we have arrival and departure dates, nearly one in five, 11, stayed at the school less than a year, half of those only a few months. Another one in six went home between their first and second year. 16 of the withdrawing students were boys, five were girls. Longer tenure at the school did not necessarily bring better adjustment to the English regime either. Of those who stayed more than two years, three were expelled for disciplinary reasons, others corrected often repeatedly for behaviors that reflected conscious resistance to a strictly regulated English life, for which transgressions students were held strictly to account. We don't know the specifics of the corporal punishment inflicted on students, though we do know it was used. And, as in the church tribunals Wheelock employed with his own English congregation, punishment at the Indian school also included public confession, humiliation, and shaming. Mirroring the church court practice, students were made to sign a public confession written by Wheelock, the schoolmaster, or the student themselves, acknowledging the nature of the sins they had committed, for all transgressions were couched as breaches of God's law. Presumably, as in the church courts, this was read before the master and the assembled students prior to the administration of whatever other punishment might take place. This public shaming was an intentional part of the reproof. The Delaware Jacob Woolley, for example, acknowledged several gross breaches of the law of God in the summer of 1763. He'd been guilty of drinking strong drink to excess and of being in a very sinful passion of anger, swinging my fists, stamping my feet, attempting to throw my bed and bedclothes out the chamber win window while repeatedly daring God Almighty to damn me. When Wheelock had urged him to stop, Woolley increased it with more violence. Clearly, Woolley had a lot of pent-up anger. But now he repented the way he had dishonored God and hurt the school and asked forgiveness of Mr. Wheelock, the master, and of the whole family and school. Presumably, his confession preceded whatever corporal correction he received, followed by a probationary reintegration back into the school community. Woolley's confession mirrors several similar confessions among other male students, several of whom became repeat offenders. Girl students, too, exhibited behaviors that from a distance seem almost consciously targeted to resist school standards. 
The Narragansett, Mary's secretary, confessed to drunkenness and lewd conduct twice in three months during 1768. In one confession written for her by Wheelock, she got drunk after Sunday services, came into the school, and behaved herself in a lewd and very immodest manner among the schoolboys while profaning the name of God. In another, she confessed to going to the tavern and tarrying there with much rude and vain company until a very unseasonable time of the night while dancing and engaging in unseemly and wicked conduct, particularly drinking too much spirituous liquor. The ease and frequency with which students gained access to liquor locally and the welcome they received in Levin and Crank's tavern raised questions about how Wheelock and the Indian School were received in the local community. Clearly, some people weren't hesitant to help undermine the school's intentions for the students, whether from economic self-interest, resentment at Wheelock, or an intentional effort to disprove the school's view of the Indians' potential. Other townspeople actively supported the school. Many Lebanon Crank residents, the housewives paid to instruct the girls in housewifery, the tradesmen who took the boys on as apprentices, and a wide variety of people who provided goods and services to the school gained economically from the students' presence here. Passing comments outlined these varied points of views. One writer noted, though only after Wheelock had moved the school to New Hampshire, that the presence of the boys playing games around the school had been a positive feature of village life. It seems very melancholy to see the green so clear of such a number of sprightly youth as was wont to be there, they said. Others found the Indian boys' presence a way to exercise their racist prejudices. Wheelock once lamented to a school supporter the difficulty of finding suitable apprenticeships for the students who were to become blacksmiths. The greatest difficulty, he said, is that their fellow apprentices, English boys, will despise them and treat them as slaves. Such attitudes were by no means restricted to the young. David Crosby, a friend of Wheelock's, wrote of a conversation he had in a nearby town with two men critical of the school. They called Wheelock's attempt to Christianize the Indians as altogether absurd and fruitless and said that they could never respect an Indian, Christian or no Christian, so as to put him on a level with white people to eat at the same table. In such an environment, it's easy to see how extraordinarily difficult it would be for Wheelock students to successfully endure the cultural changes the school attempted to impose on them. The price of becoming Christian was to accept membership in a society where one would always be seen as an inferior, at least by some. And it's no wonder so many of the students ultimately recoiled at the Anglicization efforts and why their work as missionaries and school teachers lasted only a short time before they rejected their English schooling and returned to their indigenous lifestyles. The combinations of encouragement to sin and overt racism to which the Indian students were exposed in some quarters at the crank, couldn't be fully offset by the support and encouragement they received in other quarters. In fact, the mixed signals received from the white community must have made adjustment to English culture even more complicated and confusing and problematic. And it may well have been a significant but unspoken factor 
in Wheelock's early arrived at but slowly realized decision to move his school farther from English settlements and closer to the indigenous frontier. Wheelock's increasing involvement in the 1760s with the growth and relocation of his school came at the cost of disengagement with his church. His decision in 1766 to ask to be released from his ministerial requirements began a four-year process of increasingly unpleasant confrontation with his own congregation. The church made a relatively half-hearted effort to compete with the capacious offers Wheelock had secured from other places, but it's unlikely they thought he would accept it, and he didn't. The church then, prior to releasing Wheelock from his obligation, tried several times to find a new minister. These efforts were thwarted at least once by Wheelock himself, who told a candidate the church wanted to hire that the congregation had effectively cheated him out of his rightful salary. By the end, the confrontations got personal. The year before he left Lebanon Crank, Wheelock told parishioner Hannah Dunham, your tongue, if not your heart, seemed to be set on fire of hell. In response, Dunham sent Wheelock a short poem that reached all the way back to the Great Awakening and forward to the Indian School to make a double jab at Wheelock. Calling Wheelock's church a shepherd's tent, a reference to the place where Wheelock's brother-in-law had stripped off his pants in the Great Awakening, Dunham wrote, I can't my father's house come near, my shepherd's tent pass by, but hell and potash give a smoke, and engine arrows fly. In the end, Wheelock moved the school to its present location in 1770. Only two of the school's Native American students, the Narragansetts Abraham and Daniel Simons, accompanied him. Several of the local families most engaged in the school when he was here went with him. From the congregation, once the foundation of his support, there was now a chorus of recrimination. Parish people continue in status quo, Beasley Woodward wrote just before he left to join Wheelock in Hanover. Revilings don't yet cease. Small matter. Eliezer Wheelock, congregational minister, celebrated New Light evangelist, and founder of Moore's Indian Charity School, was now a college president. But that's another story. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Beth Regan, Sarah Burbine, Ingrid Wood, the Columbia Historical Society, Dartmouth College, and the people in town of Columbia. Be sure to listen to the next episode appearing June 1st when Mohegan elder Beth Regan tells us the full story of Samson Ockham. And with that episode, we'll also post Dartmouth professor Colin Calloway's fascinating stories about Native Americans who have attended Dartmouth College through the years. And for more great Connecticut history, Stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, at ctexplored.org. Through May 31st, 2019, for just $20, Grading the Nutmeg listeners receive six issues for the price of four with coupon code GTNSPRING19. That's two free issues added to a one year subscription with coupon code GTNSPRING19 when you subscribe by May 31st, 2019. At 
That's ctexplore.org backslash shop. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.